Lord, we just come before you. We thank for this day. We thank for each person that's here. We ask you that if there's anybody else coming, you bring them, bring them quickly and that you keep us warm. We pray for Mark, who's not feeling good, and others that aren't feeling good, and just ask you to heal them. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 7, starting at verse 10. Behold the day, behold it is come, the morning is gone forth, the, bu- the rod has blossomed, pride hath bound- budded. Violence is risen up into a rod of wickedness, none of them shall remain, n- nor of their multitude, nor of any of their theirs, neither shall there be any wailing for them. The time is come, the day draws near, let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for the wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. For the seller shall not return to that which is sold, although they, they that yet, yet they were yet alive. For the vision is touching the whole multitude thereof, which shall not return, neither shall any strengthen himself for the iniquity of his life. But they have blown the trumpet, even to make ready, but none goes to the battle. For my wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. And we're going to stop there, because we've been... Looking at this, if we remember last week, we talked about how this very much appears to be the end times that he's talking about. All the trials and tribulations and troubles that they're going to face. Because Ezekiel is writing after the fall to Babylon. So this isn't Babylon that he's talking about. So he's either talking about the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and and Israel, or he's talking about all the way to the Antichrist and the Tribulation period. And I believe that he's talking about the Antichrist and the Tribulation period because of how much woe he's, he's bringing forth on here. But he starts out, Behold the day, behold it comes, the morning is gone, the rod has blossomed, pride has blossomed. The rod is something that's dead. So when it blossoms, it means that something dead has been blossomed. Uh, if you remember the, the rod that budded, Aaron's rod that budded when... When the people of Israel came together and they, they went against Moses and Aaron saying, who made, you, who made you the rulers of us? And Moses immediately went on his face and prayed and he said, okay, take, take Aaron's rod and take one rod from each of the tribes and whoever's rod buds overnight, God is chosen. And so, and if you know, a rod, of course, is a dead stick. You know, it's, it, there's no life in it. No matter what you do to it, you stick it in water, for a year or two years, it's not going to grow <laughs> buds and blossoms. And overnight, Aaron's, Aaron's rod budded. It put out leaves. It put out almonds. <laughs> uh, in this case, you know, he's saying, out of this death, I'm going to bring the, the strength, but it is going to be, it's not going to be good because it says it is pride that is bust, blossoming from this. And one of the greatest sins of the world is pride. Lucifer fell from heaven because he got proud. The number one archangel in in heaven decided he wanted to be not greater than God, because if you look at what it says in Isaiah, it says he was wanting to be like God. He wanted to ascend unto the throne of heaven with God. So he wanted to be equal to God. He was, he was smart enough to know that he couldn't be greater than the creator, but he wanted to be equal to the creator. And then he was cast out of heaven, became uh, Lucifer and uh, Satan. And then his very attack to Eve was, you know, God's trying to hold you back because he knows that the day you eat it, you will be, again, like God. 
knowing good from evil. And that's, this, that's the attack Satan uses on us even to this day. You know, you are smart enough to be making your own decisions. You know, be, be proud. You don't need to humble yourself and pray. You don't need to ask God what to do. Just go out and do whatever you want because you are so smart and you are so proud, <laughs> you don't need God. And so his, his attack is still the same today as it has been for all of eternity, you know, for all of his time that he's been created. The, the sin of pride is what he has done. The sin of pride is where he attacks. And most people have their problems with basically pride. I, I am going to take the items that belong to my neighbor because I deserve them. I'm, I'm important enough that I deserve them. They don't deserve them. Uh, I am going to be vicious and attack people because they are hurting my pride. They're making me look bad. Almost every sin that we have out there is rooted in pride at some level. This is one of the reasons I say that if I get angry about something that's happened to me, it's very hard to have godly anger when I'm the one that's involved because what am I angry about? I'm angry that you hurt my feelings or you made me look bad or you took something away that I think belongs to me. It's very hard to be angry and positive and, and godly when you're, you're, the, you're trying to defend your rights. But if you're trying to defend the rights of some individual other than yourself, it's a little easier to stay righteous because you're, you're just trying to defend the poor, the, the, the people that are being abused. I mean, it's a little, easy, little easier to stay without sin. You can still kind of get too much of your pride in there. And so God's saying there's going to come this budding branch with pride. And that pretty clearly seems to be Satan, I would say, because that's his big sin and he's going to rule. He's going to establish himself as the ruler of this world. He's going to eventually into the time of tribulation step into the, the Jerusalem temple and say, I am God, worship me. And that is when Israel will realize that they have been tricked and misled and they will look at him and say oh <laughs> this is not who we thought it was so we look at this and say the time is coming when all of this is going to happen and verse 11 says violence has risen up a, as a rod in the wickedness none shall remain nor their multitude nor any of their theirs neither shall there be wailing for them there won't be mourning for the dead at this point. And this, this is one of those things that really makes me think it's the end, uh, end times when so many people are going to die so quickly. And I, I counted up and something like 66% of the population dies in the seven years of the tribulation. That's a lot of people. And you figure there's four to six trillion people in this world. That means uh, most of them, four trillion people will die in seven years. And we've never seen death on that kind of scale. I mean, we, we thought it was bad when Hitler murdered millions of people, and it was when the tribulation period comes and trillions of people die. It's going to be unfathomable. Death like that has never been seen in this world, and there won't be any mourning for people. There just won't, you know, there's going to be too many, you know, one out of every three people would be dead. Yeah, it, or, excuse me, two out of every three people would be dead. <laughs> so there won't be anybody to bury the dead. There won't be anybody to care for the dead. So 
there no mourning, no weeping, because violence will be increasing. And you think about this, when Satan rules and God is pulled back and the, and the church is not there to hold back evil. And our church, the church isn't doing a great job in our day and age, but we still hold back evil. We still have people that will say, no, that is wrong, you can't do this. And we have some effect upon our communities and our, and our states and, and our countries. But when God takes the church out and there's not that voice saying, no, don't do it, think about how bad things will get when the world can do pretty much what they want to. And what do they want to do? Evil. And the restraining of the church is about the only thing that keeps them from being as evil as they would like to be right now. And here it's saying <laughs> the rod of wickedness is going to be there. It's going to be evil. It's going to be wicked. They think they're right, too. They're defending themselves, basically. Well, they're, they all, I mean, the, more, the further you get from God, the more you're going to think that anything you do is right. Because if you're doing things in your own pride and you're the one making the rules, then it becomes very easy to just say, well, if I'm making the rules, I'm going to make rules that make me feel good. And that is what's going on in our world right now is people get away from there's no absolute truth, you know, this idea that there's no absolute truth, and they're the ones setting truth, then what are you going to set as your truth? You're going to set as your truth what makes you feel good. What makes you feel good? Usually something that makes others feel bad. And this is why the way of the world does not work when it comes down to it, because if I'm doing everything that makes me feel good, that means somebody else is probably going to feel bad. And this is why God says, I want you to work with each other and help one another. We're to esteem others. We're to build them up. We're to, we're to give way to them and, and let them have their way, even if it, it's, as long as it's not sinful, we let them have their way and say, okay, you know, God's going to bless you. That is unnatural. It's hard to do sometimes when you look at it because you know, I'm not going to sit here and defend myself because I want God to be my defender and I will tell you what sin is and I will, and I will share what the gospel is. But I'm not going to sit there and force people to make the decision because if you force their hand, they're just going to change their mind later on anyway. When somebody else comes along and tells them some other argument that's better than your argument. So all I can do is teach God's word, let the Holy Spirit minister into people's lives and for each of us. We tell them the truth, we let the Holy Spirit minister to them and just leave it. When I teach doctrine, I'm going to teach this is what God says. And I've said it over and over. I go, this is what I believe, this is why I believe it. You, can, you, you deal with it what you want. Because each person is going to have to struggle with, why do I believe what I believe? And if you don't know what you believe and why, you've got a problem. And I think the why is as important as anything else, because I know many people in churches that believe something, and their why is, my Sunday school teacher when I was in fourth grade taught me this, or my pastor in, when I was 16 taught me this, or my pastor taught me this when I was 30. Well, I'm sorry, that's not a good why. <laughs> Because you're not able to defend what you believe and explain what you believe and why. This is why all the evolution garbage crept into our churches is because people didn't understand that they needed to believe the, the first 11 books of the Bible that God's, what God said is true. 
They let all these lies slip in. We, don't, we look at it and say, what is sin? And I can tell you, it is so sad. There are probably millions of churches, especially in America, that don't preach sin because they don't want to offend anybody. God says we are sinners. And as sinners, we are going to sin. And when we sin, sin has consequences. For a Christian, it has consequences that God will punish in this, in this world. Not take away our salvation, but punish and make life difficult in this world for our sin. For the lost, the ultimate punishment for that sin is going to be that they're going to go to hell for eternity. And if we're not teaching God's word is that they're sinners, we're not, we're not helping anybody. Oftentimes the idea is I don't want to offend somebody and then maybe my love will help, help them grow. Well, that's all good and fine, but unless you deal with the hard things in people's lives, you're not, they're not going to grow. They're not going to make the hard decisions on their own because if you're not telling them as a strong Christian, why should they deal with it? It's obviously not that important because you're not telling them. So as a Christian, we need to share with people. Not harsh, not condemning, but this is what God says. This is what truth is. You are a sinner and sinners go to hell. And we don't want to be cruel and harsh with it, but it is a fact that if you do not know Jesus Christ, you are going to hell. And we need to be able to share that with people in a loving way. And if we avoid that centerpiece of the gospel, we're not going to bring people to Christ. And if we do, they're coming to some weak, weak form of Christianity that's not going to, not going to help them. That doesn't mean you go up to everybody, you're going to hell, <laughs> you know, and get in their face. That doesn't work. <laughs> just because you sin don't mean you're going to hell. No. All sinners go to hell. All sinners go to hell, and all those that are in Christ go to heaven. And both sin. Mm -hmm. But being in Christ means my sin is covered, and I'm in the righteousness of Christ, and I'm going to heaven. Now, what happens in... Many churches and many false and all false religions, they're going, well, you just need to do as much good as you can and hope that your good outweighs your, your bad. And guarantee if you look deep enough into any false religion, that's exactly what they are teaching. It's true of the uh, Mormons. It's true of the, of the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Why do they work as hard as they do? Is because they need good work so that they can go to heaven. They have to do more good than bad. How do the Hindus get to, to, their, to their, form, their version of heaven? They have to do more good than bad and, and work their lives over and over again, moving up the, up the ladder of, of things until they get good enough to earn heaven. How do they do it in, in, with Buddha? You have to think yourself into being Buddha. How do you do that? You clear your mind of all the bad and, all, and, and, just, and even for them, the good. You're kind of neutral. You just you're trying to think yourself above all your problems, and totally ignore everything, good or bad. But we look at this. How do you get to heaven? Well, for Christianity, you would commit. You admit that you're a sinner, that you deserve punishment, and you accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice. All other religions are based upon what can I do? How can I please the deity? And this is very true that we see. We see it in, and the sad thing is we see it in many churches that they do the same thing. 
They forget the gospel and tell you to do good things. They're just trying to get people into their church. So. Well, they're trying to get disciplined flesh. Be good. Be nice. Be kind. Now, are those bad things? Absolutely not. If God's in me, that's what's going to come out of me. But it's coming out of me because God is changing who I am to be more like him. And he is expressed outward, not because I'm beating my flesh into submission, not because I'm doing all of this stuff, but because God is changing who I am. It's not just outward production of works. It is I am being changed. And this is the most important thing. How do we get patience with God? Is God comes in and he teaches us to be patient. How do we get more loving? He comes in and he changes who we are and we become more loving. And we can tell, you can tell when somebody's playing a game at, at being patient or being loving. Eventually they blow up. Okay, I'm showing you lots of patience, but boy, you just wait till you get to this, you know, you, the, the gauge is getting higher and higher and higher and I'm going to explode. How do we express patience and love to people when it's God doing it? He comes in, changes us to be more like him, and we express love and kindness. Doesn't mean that we don't say hard things. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean that we can't speak the truth in love. But it always has to be in love. When you're, when you're going to go to somebody and, and express an issue you see in their life, make sure it's in love. Make sure you've been praying for them. Because nothing comes in and goes, hey, you know, you, you've been really messing up. I've been watching you. <laughs> That's not much love in that, that statement. And how are they going to react? They're going to get mad back at you. Who are you to judge me? Uh, and they'll probably point out your own problems. <laughs> but if you're going up to them, you know, I've really been praying you, for you because I have been noticing this, this area of your life. And I just, just want you to know I've been praying for you. And I hope that God helps you change it. There's a lot of love in that saying, I'm not judging you, but you're, you're making some bad decisions and I'm, I've been really praying for you because I love you enough to pray for you. And this is one of the things I tell the guys at the prison all the time because they're going, well, how do I, what do you do when you see somebody do this? I go, you pray for them and you pray for them and you pray for them. And then if God tells you to go talk to them, then you talk to them because you've been praying for them. You've been showing them love. But love is the whole key for everything that we do. Jesus came to this world and he loved everybody he came in contact with. He didn't blast them out of the water and he's God. He could have. You know, you're not living up to the standards and I know what you're doing in your home when nobody's watching because I'm God. He could have let them have it, but how did he do it? He was loving and gentle with people. He didn't tell them that they were okay. He didn't tell them that they were, that their sin was okay. The woman at the, at the well in Samaria, what did he finally teach, tell her? You've answered well. Now, you know, you, you have, you're, you're, you've been married six times, and the man you've got now isn't your husband. And he goes, and he just gently said, get right. But he, he could have blasted her because of, of, of all of this. And we want to be careful. How do we deal with people in our lives that we're in contact with? And sometimes the hardest ones for us to deal with is our family because they know how to get in under our skin too. And those are the ones we need to pray the most for. God, how do I reach this person? How do I, how do I show thyself as a good example to them? And then do the best you can and know that ultimately it's all up to God anyway. This is the greatest thing we have to realize when we're witnessing, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're living out our life, 
all we do is what we can do and it's all up to God. When you do a soul winning and evangelism, you've uh, done it on the street. I'm, I share the gospel, I give the tracts out, I talk to a certain number of people. I'm not responsible for any of them to come to God. And even if they say a prayer with me, I'm still not sure that they're saved because it's more than just saying the prayer, it is meaning that prayer. And I've seen many people who, who, have, who come up and say, well, I got saved and I thought I got saved back when I was 12 years old because I went forward and I said a prayer. But then they realize they never had God in their heart, never knew who he was until 30 or 40 years old. And all of a sudden they finally say that prayer and they go, this is what it means to have God living in me. And it's sad when you see these people who claim to be Christians and they're living a totally defeated life because they're trying to do it in their own strength and flesh is overpowering them and they don't have God dwelling in them. It's, at least it appears for many of them. And they don't know how to apply God's word. They don't know how to, to walk in victory once in a while, if not all the time. But before he said that, though, he administered to them in a, in a great way, and they at least knew that they were a sinner. And this is something that's important for us. You cannot lead somebody to God and salvation without dealing with the fact that they're a sinner. Because you have nothing to be saved from if you don't acknowledge that you're a sinner. And too many people in my lifetime, I've watched people, because I've done a lot of street evangelism, I've watched people who try to avoid the sin, the sin thing and say, you need a savior, you, you, know, you want to go to heaven, this is how you do it. Well, it's more than just going to heaven, it is having Jesus Christ in our life as our savior to give us victory over sin in the now. Not just some pie in the sky future event, which a lot of people try to portray when, they, when they're witnessing. Is it important to let them know that there's heaven? Yes, that's important to let them know. But God wants to give us victory now. In our daily walk, he wants to give us victory. He wants to come and dwell us so that he can change who we are and we'll be victorious in our day-to-day -day walk and we will be doing more godly things and less sinful things. To the point where if you walk with him long enough, you're doing lots of godly things because what is the word that God uses in the New Testament when he talks to us about us? He calls us saints. Okay? Everybody who is born again is a saint, a holy, set-aside person who can walk in victory. We are saints. The, the, the normal thing you hear in a church is, you know, we're sinners saved by grace, and we are, but we're also saints. We're above just the title of sinners saved by grace because why are we saints he indwells us he puts on the righteousness of christ on us and as he indwells us he changes us to be more like him and we start walking more like him which is why i keep telling everybody examine your life just as paul said examine your life to see that you're in the faith and that means we look at our life and say am i following god do i know god or am i just pretending because we look at the sower and the seed and he scatters out the seed. Some landed on the road. It didn't even have a chance to grow. The, the animals ate, you know, the birds ate it as fast as it hit the ground. Some landed amongst the weeds and got choked out, you know, popped up a little bit, but got choked out. Some on rocks was so thin a soil that it looked good for it until it got hot. And as soon as it got hot, it died out. Three out of the four seeds 
were not saved, <laughs> did not produce fruit. Only the ones that landed on the fertile soil grew up and produced fruit. Now, how much fruit? That's dependent on each individual. <laughs> but we need to look at our life. How much does it take to, make a, to shake us out from God? How much? You know, how much heat does it take to say, oh, I give up? That doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved at that point because there, we all need to grow. And that's the purpose of God's tests, is to teach us that we're not where we're supposed to be and we need to keep growing. But we, well, as I say, it's better to look at yourself over a period of months because day to day it's hard to know whether you're growing. Right. But it's the thing I say is I look at people's lives in this church that have been ministered to for, for two, three, four years, and I'm watching where they used to be to where they are today and going, they're growing. And I can say that for all practical purposes, they appear to be saved Christians growing in Christ. And that's, that's ultimately one of the lines I used to use on street evangelism when somebody would not accept Christ. I'm going, I just want to make sure you understand that on you know, uh, November 29th at 6.28 p.m., you heard the gospel message. You will not be able to tell God you never heard it. And make them say, you know, you are accountable. You are accountable. You will not be able to tell God you never heard it. And it was sometimes worked, sometimes didn't, but... Now, oftentimes I would use that just to say you were told. You can never say that you weren't told. And amazing to me, and I've shared this before, how many people have heard the testimony of, you know, and I heard the gospel for the first time on that night and I got saved. Well, it's really funny when you know the person and you know that you've given them the gospel three or four times before that night that they got saved. But, you know, at the same time, it really is true. It was probably the first time they actually heard it beyond just words hitting the eardrums and going into the brain. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the universe declares God's glory, the heavens declare God's glory, everything around you declares God's glory. As far as God's concerned, you're never without excuse because yeah. you know that he exists and we have an inner conscience that tells us that we're doing wrong. And everybody knows instinctively that what they're doing is wrong. Now, they may have seared their conscience over time. They may have done it so much that they're not paying attention to their conscience anymore and they've just scarred it over. But at least in the early days of what they were doing, they knew that it was wrong. And God says, and this is part of what Romans teaches us, that even the sinners can't keep their own laws, their own rules. And this is true when you look at people, uh, gangs and everything have rules that you have to follow. Now, they're kind of weird rules in many cases, but they have rules that you have to follow, and many of the guys can't keep those rules, and they get in trouble with the gang because they can't, they can't, abide, they can't obey even man's lightweight rules. And God says, you're guilty even of those. You're, you, know, you can't keep my laws, and you can't even keep your own laws. How many people have said, well, I'm not going to do, you know, whatever it is. 
And then two weeks later, they're doing exactly what they said they're not going to do because they know it's wrong and not good for them. And God says, you can't even follow your own simple rules, your own rules. You're guilty just for that. Not just that you broke my rules. You can't even keep your, your lesser rules. And so God and the vengeance and the, and the wailing and all the problems that are going to happen in the end time, as the world gets darker, our light shines brighter. Even a little, even the Christian who feels that their light is so feeble, light dispels dark. Darkness does not ever overcome um, the light. So even a Christian with a very shallow, poorly lit light will shine out in the darkness because they won't do things, they won't, they won't say things, they won't, there's something in their life that will shine out in goodness. And there be that light. Now, some, some Christians who have been walking with God for a long time and in the word of God and God has made some changes, they're blazing lights. They get seen by lots of people. And this is very true for many people who come to church every Sunday. People know that you're going to church. If you, if you come out with the Bible, you've ever, ever shared with them in, around, around your neighborhood, they know what you're doing. And what happens when you don't go to church? They'll start asking you, uh, what's happening? Why, why aren't you going to church? You know, it's uh, something wrong. You're not as good. You're really not that good a Christian. It's amazing what the world, the world is watching us. It's looking for who we are and what we do. And when we share that we're a Christian, they instantly start looking at us. How does a Christian live? How does a Christian go through hard trials? How does a Christian go through hard times? What does a Christian do in certain situations? And they're looking for something that's different from the way they do it. What do they see so often from Christians? That they're no different from them, really, when it comes down to actual living out. And that just drives them away from crowd. Oh, well, you know, that, I was hoping that the Christian would be somebody different, but, you know, they fell apart just like I do during, during those hard things. So those, they're a Christian, they think of someone that's perfect that never sins anymore. Yeah. But by the same token, if you live differently and you're, and you're doing things different than they are, they will notice. Because in one sense, they don't want perfect people. They, they believe the Christians should be perfect, but they also don't want us to be perfect. Because if we were perfect, then they couldn't obtain to, they would never believe that they could obtain to where we're at. But they do judge us from a perfect standard. Yes, we have to put ourselves in there because we are sinners and we're going to fail. And this is why if a pastor has an epic fail in a church, not even necessarily a big one that takes him, you know, makes him not, but he does something that is really considered a sin, there's a lot of people who will fall away from a church because they've put their pastor on a pedestal and say, this guy's supposed to be perfect. Oh, he fell. If he fell, what can I do? This is the guy who's gone to school and knows the Bible inside out and really knows that if he can't make it, how can I? They've got to understand the pastor's a, a sinner just like them. Now, hopefully they don't sin all the time and, and, and a really bad example, but a pastor is going to fail. A pastor is going to have a bad day when they're not, they're not in a good loving mood and they say things that are harsh to somebody. That's just the way things are going to happen. 
And people look at him and go, the pastor's always supposed to be loving, always supposed to say his kind things, never supposed to be cross, never supposed, to, never going to have a bad day. Well, if you're going to have a, if you're going to think your pastor's like that, if you think I'm like that, you're, you're, you've got another thing coming. It's uh, no pastor is ever going to be that way. And we need to keep them that way. <laughs> and realize that we're all sinners. The day we think that we're not a sinner or try to make others think that we're not a sinner, we're in big trouble. Because people are going to look at us and say, well, I don't know about this. And if we put up the front that we're not a sinner and maybe, maybe successfully live, live that life in front of people, we're going to set such a high standard that people aren't going to think that they could be a Christian because they're going to say, I can't be perfect. Yeah, you can go too far the other way with it too, but I mean it's. But we do need to keep recognizing that Christians are are sinners; they will fail, and the world needs to see. But the, what the world needs to see also is when we fail, we repent and we continue following God, and we come right back and follow God. That is the most important aspect of living a godly life in front of them, because then they say, "Oh, hold it, His, that failure didn't keep them down." Maybe there's something to this God of theirs. Maybe this is something I do want to, to look at. But it's so important because this world is getting dark. This world is getting evil. How much more evil can it get before it's to the days of Noah? I don't know. It kind of scares me to think how bad it's got to get. If, it, if this isn't enough to be at the days of Noah, it's kind of scary to think about how bad it's going to get. And yet, God knows when it's going to be dark. But as the church and Christians, we shine bright. And Jesus even said that we're to be a light on the hill. And if you think about this, if, if we were able to go up to Windy Point and get a light to stay lit, <laughs> you, know, you would be able to see it from miles and miles away, even if it was just a candle. <laughs> because it's so high up, you would see it everywhere. This is the way our life is to be. We are a candle that lights up and is seen and people notice and they will look at. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. It's, and it's, this is why it's so much fun to, to share the gospel with people because it doesn't matter what I say and what I don't say as long as I lift God up. I lift Jesus up. He is the salvation. We are sinners and he is the answer. Another old song from the 70s, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Without him, there's no other. Uh, Jesus is the way. And he really is the answer. To all the questions they don't even realize they're asking, Jesus is ultimately the answer. But we need to just lift him up. Not lift ourselves up, not try to make us look like the, the hero. We lift up Jesus and say, Here's what you need. You need Jesus. You think I, you know, you think I'm doing pretty good, and you know, and, and I really am. But it's Jesus who's doing it in my life. I was witnessing to one guy on the campus, and he goes, "Oh, it's easy for you to follow God. You've got your whole life put together." And I'm going, "If only you knew how bad my life wasn't put together." You know, 
and he was right. I wasn't dealing with drugs and alcohol and, and fornication and all those things that he did. But, you know, no matter how much we've got our life put together when the world looks at us, there's still a lot of sin in our life that has to be worked out. And we will spend our rest of our natural life working out the sin in our life. And it will look, it, we can come to a place where it kind of looks like we're perfect to the outside world because they don't see our issues. But you know, I have just as many problems because I have to deal with my mind. I have to deal with my thoughts. I have to deal with the sins that are pounding away and being projected in my thoughts. And as Jesus said, if you've looked at some, a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. If you've gotten angry with a brother, you've committed a, a murder as far as he's concerned. So we have many problems in our, in our minds that have to be worked out. And so we look at this, and, it, and verse 12 says, The time is come, the day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for the wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. For the seller shall not return to that which is sold, although they were yet alive, for the vision is touching the whole multitude thereof, which shall not return, neither shall any strength in himself in the iniquities of his life. Such a bad environment that even after you've bought something, it's abandoned because this is how bad things are. And this is not really something that happens very often. Uh, during periods of hyperinflation, we see this kind of thing where people come in with a whole bunch of a wheelbarrow of money and buy their item and it's, and it's overpriced by the time. Yeah, you know, they, 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 the money is worthless by the time they get to the market. Uh, when you're in hyperinflation, the people demand to get paid on a daily basis because by the end of the week, the, the, the money you earned at the beginning of the week would be totally worthless. So you, you demanded to get paid that day so you could go out and spend that money to try to buy something before it went up in price. He's having that kind of a picture here. You know, don't let the seller rejoice or the, even the... Or the or the buyer rejoice because there's nothing there. There's no life. There's nothing. In Revelation, we're told that the entire economy is going to fail in the, in the last days. This is kind of, a, kind of an interesting thought when we think about it. Because for us, we've always had some kind of economy. Uh, whether it's our current day where you take your plastic and turn it into something, you buy something with it. Or back when there was actually money that meant something, <laughs> or even further back when it was the barter system that things worked on. Now, I've had a lot of people tell me, well, I'm just going to learn to barter real well. Well, Revelation tells us that you won't be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And barter does not appear to be working. The, the, the economy has totally crashed during that period of time, something that we can't even fathom, the, the total crashing of the economy. And that'll be the mark of the beast and all the basically credit, no, no real money being exchanged. And, and we're almost there in, one, in many senses. In a credit card, all you're doing is transferring bits of information. You're not even moving any real currency. Uh, I go to the store, hand them my piece of plastic. They send an electronic statement to the bank who sends an electronic statement to their bank. And all of a sudden, money has moved. And no money has moved. It's just... <laughs> information that's moved they've taken information out of my bank and put it into the to the other bank well i'm not saying we're there yet but we're we're dangerously close to the to the total lack of of money and finances and everything really
Yeah, and this is why when people say, you know, we've been saying for years that the Antichrist is coming, we're sitting right on the cusp of it. We, we are basically at a cashless society for all practical purposes. Very few people handle cash. We are, as, as you mentioned, by giving people an international number of their own, they're, they're tracked all of a sudden, you know where they're at, you know if they're where they're not supposed to be. Uh, GPS now can find your possessions or you, no matter where you're at. We are sitting right on the edge of everything that the book of Revelation and all the other, up, everything, that, everything that Satan is going to do is going to sound like the answer to all the problems. But all it is, all it ultimately is, is to control us. Even here in the cell phone, I can remember back when I was younger, I refused to carry a pager, and now I have a cell phone. Okay, I refused to carry a pager on my day off because I didn't want to be contacted on my day off, and now I carry a cell phone all the time, and people can always find me no matter where I'm at. It's a two-edged sword. All this technology that helps us do things also is way to control. My, my pager always accidentally got left on the dresser when I, on my day off. Took it to work with me all the time, but on my days off, it got left on the dresser just by accident every, every time. I wasn't going to be called on my day off. I had one day off a week if I was lucky. So when I had a day off, I wasn't carrying a pager for the store to get hold of me. That's what I had, that's what I had assistant managers for. We look at this and saying things are going to fall apart. Don't let the sellers rejoice, they got a great deal, or don't let the buyers rejoice because they got a good deal because it probably wasn't when it comes down to it. Because the end days says neither are going to return and they won't be able to strengthen themselves in their iniquity. And this is something we have noticed and we've mentioned before. People keep sinning, thinking that somehow that sin is going to make them feel better. And the strange thing is it might make them feel better for a very short time, but eventually it doesn't work. It doesn't have the same kick. It doesn't have the same effect. You need more and more of it or, or greater and greater intensity. It just doesn't work. There's no rejoicing in sin in the long haul. It always tears down. It always brings down. You always need more of it to get the same feel that you used to have. And then you have to intensify it because, it, because it's not enough. And this is what happens with drugs and even alcohol. There's, you, your body builds that tolerance. It doesn't work as well. You, you need more of it. You need a heavier, heavier alcohol, a heavier drug, a more intense one to try to get the same feeling. And it only works for a short time and you need more. And no matter what sin it is, it's the same thing. Pornography has that draw of you start with just you know, lightweight pornography and then you get into the more you know, hard stuff. And then you get to the place where I, I want to actually feel and do what it is I've been want, you know, watching. And that's not an, it just it drives, sin drives to deeper and deeper sin and eventually puts chains and shackles on us that we just feel like we can't get out of because of how far and how deep we've gone. And that's why God comes along and says, I've got, I've got your answer. I've got your answer. I'm the way out of all of this. Verse 14, they have blown the trumpets even to make all ready, but, and, but none go to battle for the wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. I'm sorry, Pastor. Uh -huh. 
113, the last part of my translation says, for the vision concerning the whole crowd will not be reversed. What does that mean? I'd have to look up how they even came up with that. Because neither shall strengthen himself in, in the iniquity of his life is what I, what I see. And I, I have another, and that's what I saw is on it. It's basically life has abandoned us. I, I don't know how they're coming up with vision in that. Yeah. Um, I don't see how they came up with vision on that one. Uh, for the vision of touching the whole multitude of their, which none shall return. And that's, again, that's looking at sin, seeing sin and trying to go into sin as your as your what as your as what you're looking at because then it says that the iniquity uh, none can strengthen themselves in their iniquity iniquity tears down but uh, vision there is you know they look at their they look at sin they think it's going to be the answer and it just tears the, tears down their strength that may be what that's trying to say I don't know but this is something vision always refers to what are we looking at and we as Christians look to Christ if we're doing our job the way we're supposed to. We look to Christ, and he gives us strength. We, we look to him. We, we need to be spending time even asking him, God, what is it you want me to do this day, this hour, <laughs> this week, next month? God, what is it you want me to do? Proverbs tells us, without a vision, the people perish. We need to look to God and say, God, what is the vision you have for me? What is it you want me to do? And the thing about that is it's going to be different for every single person. I've had people ask me, what do you think God wants me to do with my life? I go, I have no idea what God wants you to do with your life. I have a hard enough, trying to, hard enough time trying to figure out what God wants me to do with my life, much less trying to tell you what to do with yours. I can't do that. You need to go before God. You need to pray. You need to get into God's word and listen. We're always going to have that question because we're walking by the just shall live by faith. So that puts us right in that question mark all the time, which means that every day we need to get up and start each day asking, God, what is it you want me to do today? What is it you want me to do in the near future? Because I have heard people come up and say, well, I think God wants me to do this great job. And sometimes I've even looked at them and going, okay, you're not doing the little things right now. What makes you think you're going to do the great things? You know, you're not even faithful teaching your Bible study class each week, and you think you're going to be the, the head of a church. Uh, I don't think so. That you, you, you're not, and God says that if we're faithful in the little, he will give us more. If we're not faithful in the little things, God's not going to give us a vision. You're going to be the pastor of a 20,000-person church, and you can't even witness and share the gospel today. There's no way you're going to be this great leader. Billy Graham did not start by speaking to millions of people at, at, at each of his sessions. He started out at small churches, giving revivals and preaching. And because he was faithful in the little, God gave him Great. I don't have to worry about me becoming a great minister. <laughs> but God still has great plans for you if you just stay faithful in the little things that he gives you. Because God redeems the time he, he buys back. He, he restores the years the canker worm destroys. And this is why it's so important. When we have 
live much of our life in sin and, and destruction, what God can do with the remainder of your life, you never know. Uh, so many of these pastors I listen to on the radio have had such really crazy bad you know, early parts of their lives. They were 30, 40 years old when they got saved. And God has made them great Christian leaders, partially because of what they've gone through, because they were able to minister to people in a way that I could never minister to some people. I've, I've always been in church. I fell in love with God's word and, and love God's word. And I, what I do works for many people because I bring the word and I make it alive and real. But can I minister to the guy on, the, on Skid Row when I start teaching him God's love? Yes, I can through God. But is it going to be as effective as somebody, as somebody coming and teach, talking to them who's been there? When we did uh, Celebrate uh, Recovery here, it would be so funny because I would talk to Steve and he says the same exact words that I would have used to do the class and the same exact teachings from the Bible but he had been there. He, he was talking out of something that people would say, oh, okay, you were a drunk. You were a, a drug user. They would look at me and go, you don't even know what you're talking about. It comes straight from the Bible and saying the same things he says, but you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I can tell you one thing, sin is sin. The answer to sin, no matter what kind of sin it is, is the same thing. Turn to God and, and turn your back on the sin. Whether it is Drugs, alcohol, fornication, pornography, lying, anger, whatever it might be, it's the answer to sin is the same. And we need to be very careful that we don't look at somebody and say, well, because you've not been exactly where I am, you can't, you can't teach me. Because the answer is still the same. They've, they've still had sins they've, got, they've had to go and are working out sins in their life today. And all sin has the same exact answer to conquering it. I recognize it's a sin. I choose not to be defeated by it and turn it over to God and walk in that victory. And that's how you get out of all <laughs> sin. Uh, and, and it's kind of interesting because people do look at drugs and alcohol and say, well, this one's way out in the open. Everybody sees it. And I understand that. I do understand that. It's hard for people to look at somebody and go, you've never had to deal with this sin that's so so in people's face that they know, they know who you are, you know, what you're doing and, and all of that. And I understand what they're saying on that, but the answer to sin is always the same. Whether it's personal sins that nobody notices or big, bold, <laughs> in people's face sins, the answers are still the same. Because sin has a narcotic or addictive behavior to it, no matter what sin it is. If you do it long enough, it becomes who you are and becomes addictive, becomes an addictive uh, flavor to it. People who commit fornication and adultery constantly all the time get that craving for it and have to have it, which is why they start naming these sins as sicknesses because it, all sin does have a addictive craving desire, uh, nature to it, which you could then say, if you go to the result in the, the long-term result, you go, okay, it was, it was sickness. No, it started out by being a sin that you chose to do. You did it long enough that you got addicted to it, and then you got addicted to it and had to have it and had to have more. At that point, maybe you've crossed into sickness. <laughs> but the answer is still God, because only he can change that attitude and take that addictive nature away and bring you back to 
where you're supposed to be. And all of this is, it says, they've blown their horns and nobody has come to battle. Yeah. This, is, this is a serious place where, they, where, where Ezekiel's seeing this world come to. They've called the battle cry and nobody comes to, comes to battle. Now, it doesn't mean as much to us to, in our day because we have professional armies and they, the professional armies do that, but we, we also have our, our National Guard and our, and our reserves who get a phone call and they're there to report to duty. So we still have this, but in this day, every single citizen, when they heard the war trumpets blow on the city walls, were to report <laughs> for battle. And here he's saying, we've got such a situation that nobody's coming. We've sounded the horn and nobody has come out for battle. That would be a very sad state of affairs to be it. But even having said that, the thing that scares me so much is for many Christians, the battle cry has been, the battle trumpets have been sounded to, to come forward and give the gospel. And for many Christians, they won't respond. And it's sad. I've seen it. I've seen it over. There's a lot of people that sit in the pews of a church and say, this is my, this is my seat. I paid my dues to God. And the ones that are like that are usually there one, one day a week, maybe, maybe only one or two days a month. Yeah, I've done my dues. I, I sat my butt in this pew for, for an hour and listened, and listened to the pastor, pastor teach for a while. I, I, I've, I've done all I have to do. God is wanting us to really come to him and have life. And if we get life, it changes everything we do. It changes the way we talk to people. It changes the way we act around people. It changes the way we, we treat others. It changes the way we think. And this is one of the things I say. If somebody is truly saved, they can look at their life and say, my life has changed. If somebody can tell me that they're saved and, they're, and they can't tell me their life has changed in some way, I'm going to say, you need to really look at yourself and see, do you know God? Have you had a personal relationship with God? Because he says he's going to come in and he's going to make us a new creation in 1 Corinthians 5.17. You, you are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How much of your life has become new? Any of it? If, and when I meet people who try to tell me nothing has changed in their life, I'm going, you need to really look and say, are you a Christian? If God hasn't changed your life in some way, in some way? Now, I've met many people who've had almost their whole life turned inside out and, and changed when they come to Christ. And that's impressive. But not... The one thing about that type of person, though, is they have a hard time dealing with people who get grow slowly because they just look at their life and say, well, I got changed overnight. What's wrong with you? They usually get very proud and arrogant because they haven't had to work at having God change their life. But there needs to be something that God has changed in your life. When I got saved, God took most of my temper away overnight. And it was a great change in my life to be temper free not not fighting every single day of the week and since then he's changed a lot of my life but that was the instant i was a totally different person overnight when i got saved 
perfect? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Did I lose my temper once in a while? Once in a while, but nothing like it, we, it had been before. I had one big part of my life change, and it was a big part, big change in my life. But I really do, I truly believe that everybody should have something in their life that when they look at their life, God made a change. It might be as simple of, I love my Bible and I cannot get away from reading my Bible, especially if you couldn't do it before. Or I love being with God's people and coming to church. That's one thing I've always had in my life is that I love coming to church and being with God's people. Not because they're perfect, not even because it's a good place sometimes. Sometimes it's a pretty hard place to be. But I want to be with his people. I want to be in his word. I love to study his word with a great passion. And we look at our life and say, what has God changed in my life? How do I know that I am a new creation? And this is why I challenge people, look back over the last six months, a year, two years, a decade, if it's been that long. How are you different now than you were period, a short period ago. What is different in your life? How has God made you a new creation? Because if we're not a new creation, we've got a problem. I think we regress. Huh? I think we regress. Sometimes. But the important thing on that, and this is something I have said many times, there is no standing still with God. You're either going forward or you're going backwards. And it's very important that we look at our life and say, am I going forward with God or am I just sliding back further and further? <laughs> All depends on whether... And God doesn't want lukewarm. But if we're, if we're in his word, if we're spending time with him, he is going to propel us forward. If he is our Lord and Savior, he's going to propel us forward. The problem with many people is they, they say they've accepted Jesus Christ, but they have not accepted him as Lord and Savior. And in, Revela in uh, Romans it tells us, how do we get saved? We call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and we call him Lord. And one of those things that I find here in America is we have a hard time understanding the word Lord. Our culture does not allow for somebody to have that much authority over us. It's changing. We're changing slowly. People are selling themselves to the government right and left. But we still have this culture that says, I'm not going to let anybody control me. Americans are independently uh, independent. You know, don't, don't have anybody's, nobody's going to tell me what to do. The sad thing is, as Christians, oftentimes we bring that same mentality into our Christianity. Nobody's going to tell me what to do, and it, even God is not going to tell me what to do. Now, we won't be quite that blunt with our, with our words, but really that's what we're doing when we refuse to obey what, we, what we're told to do. Paul and most of the apostles called themselves bond slaves of Christ. I am a slave by choice. And when, what do you do if you're a slave? You pay attention to the master. And how do we in America think? Yeah, we, well, I'm not, I'm not anybody's slave. I'm nobody's servant. I'm, I am the master of my own <laughs> destiny. Let's close in prayer. 
Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for everything you've given us and shown us. We ask that you help us to, to seek to follow you in all that we do and guide and lead us. And we just ask you to help each one of us learn to be under your authority more and choose to be under your authority. In your son's name, amen.